Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, by a Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. To tell you the truth, these bandages were more for your protection, to hide you from those who want you dead. As of today, your name is Ahab. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bot. Hello, I am Brian. Today's episode is The Man Who Sold the World, our first episode on 2015's Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. Today, we cover the opening mission, this game's prologue, but also this game's final mission. Love that Metal Gear duplicity. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. up the phantom pain the first time the konami and kjp logos are overlaid with audio of crashes explosions and ambulances we see the following quote from romanian philosopher emil curan it is no nation we inhabit but a language make no mistake our native tongue is our true fatherland Quran shares a regional ancestry with Skullface, and it's worth noting that Quran, as a young man was pro-nazi including supporting the iron guard He supposedly recanted on his belief shortly after the war, which, sure, but I think that is deliberate as this story with Skullface will focus on ethnic cleansers, genocide, and other rhetoric associated with Nazis. Next, we cut to a mirror and sink in a room with the text, Just Another Day in a War Without End, Outer Heaven. There is gunfire heard outside, but when this actually takes place, the player is left clueless for now. We see a cassette tape inserted into a Walkman by a bionic hand. The tape says, from the man who sold the world, and that very song starts playing. Well, not the original song by David Bowie, but rather a cover, or phantom of it, by Midge Ur, a mimetic copy setting up this game's entire narrative. We plan to circle back to Bowie and the music of this game in a later episode. The screen fades to black, and then the player wakes up in a hospital bed with nurses fiddling at their IV. When one notices the patient is waking up, she scrambles out of the room and places a phone call. V has come to. V has come to. Finally, 
We are at the Metal Gear Solid V, the Phantom Pain title screen start menu with the blurry backdrop of V in his hospital bed. This specific flavor of intro is only seen the first time you play the game per user account. Otherwise, you'll be taken directly to Snake sitting in the ACC. Starting the game or replaying the first mission, we go into Prologue, Awakenings. But this is the Phantom version of The Truth, which is the title of the 46th mission and secret ending of the game, subtitled The Man Who Sold the World. In honor of one of this game's organizing texts, 1984 by George Orwell, we are going to do our own version of Doublespeak, covering both of these episodes at once. The Awakenings chapter sets up the lie that is Big Boss's Phantom, this Venom Snake, while the truth lets us know what the real thing was doing and ties us back into the Metal Gear canon. Oh, and if we didn't call it out already, the Phantom Place takes place in 1984. Going to have a lot of Orwell in a later episode as well, so stay tuned. The Truth episode takes us back to one of our post-credits Ground Zero scenes. Kaz and Big Boss on operating tables, the latter completely unconscious. Kaz tells the doctors to do everything they can to save Boss, but then, in footage we hadn't seen, he says, what about him? And the camera pulls back to a point-of-view shot from a third operating table, and the doctors all turn ominously and look directly at the camera, saying this third patient took a lot of shrapnel. This is, of course, the point of view of Punished Venom Snake, our very helpful medic from Ground Zeroes. Before we go any further, let's lay out Big Boss's Phantom Now, voiced by Kiefer Sutherland. You've got some blood to pay me back for first. Your CQC is sloppy. Come see me later for a lesson you won't forget. Venom Snake is the name I use for the main character of the Phantom Pain, which is the one that won favor with the dev team over Punished Snake, even though Punished Snake was the announced name at E3 2013. The game script never uses the Punished moniker and refers to Venom Snake only once. It's usually just Snake and Big Boss otherwise. Keeping both of those names is in line with this game's double speak, multiple names for the same thing. Venom Snake won out in part because it has the titular V in its name, picking up the meme of Vic Boss from MGS Peace Walker, and that the game refers to Venom Snake's awakening as V has come too. Both Punished and Venom speak to the state of our snake at the start of this game, having lost a lot both physically and materially, and full of anger and rage and literal venom for those who wronged him. Yeah, having bosses literally lost his sense of self. That's, you know, that's an important thing to lose. V also reminds me of Hugo Weaving's character in V for Vendetta, a story that is downstream from Orwell's 1984, just like this game. Not only is the protagonist named V in that story, but Weaving's character is actively wearing a face of a legendary hero after his own body was horribly mutated in a government conspiracy tragedy. The other name we have is Ahab, the obsessive captain of the Pequod from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. That Ahab himself sports a prosthetic for the missing left leg, which parallels uh, Venom Snake's missing left arm. Venom Snake, much like Ahab, seeks revenge against that which stole his arm, a desire that will lead him into demonhood and eventually his own demise. Venom and Ahab also seem to have the same leadership style as reflected by their crews, not kindly or forgiving, but true to a certain code that makes men loyal to them. In terms of character design, well, he looks like Big Boss, <laughs> at least on the surface, 
the substance underneath is actually the player or how the player designs themselves in an early character creator screen. This is the game literally inserting the player into the role of Big Boss, how they become Big Boss, and how they are Big Boss. The words, I'm Big Boss, and so are you, at the end of this game are not meant only for Venom Snake, but also the player. Once the truth is revealed, the created character you designed will show up in photographs and passports, including a message from the real Big Boss that says, Good luck, from Vic Boss. Good luck, player. Before moving on, I should also mention that the obvious notable change in the character design is the horn that's coming out of Venom Snake's head, um, which will grow depending on how lethally you play this game, which is kind of a neat trick. Um, but I think that horn is a very distinctive design, and mm. um, I've actually really, really come to love the horn. I just think it's a cool little flair. Um, it almost also low-key reminds me of uh, Renard from... The world is not enough. The guy who has the bullet in his brain that's getting like deeper and deeper and the deeper it goes, the less pain he feels. Oh, what's the actor's name? He's a transporting. He's very good. Robert Carlyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think there's a lot to do with, uh, I mean, I would say we're talking about V right now, but I, I would say Ahab is almost, I think Ahab is meant to be a different character. Mm. Cause. <laughs> oh yeah. So um, one of the interesting things, and this is probably for a later episode, but uh, one of the early scripts of this game had Ahab being the real big boss and Ishmael was going to be Huey, mm. which is really weird to think about. But I yeah. think that was before they really broke the story that they ended up telling. I don't think it was just going to be a swap with everything else pretty much staying the same. I don't know. I just I get that feeling. Not to say that that V is Ishmael because it's a little more proactive than that, where Ishmael is, you know, famously just kind of sits around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just comments on things as they're happening. But there is a little bit of that in the cutscenes where a lot of the cutscenes will just be other characters doing stuff and, and V just kind of watching them, just hanging out. Mm -hmm. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. I feel I feel as though uh V I just don't think he has enough dialogue supporting it. He's and maybe it's just the way I played is very deliberate. But yeah, Kaz is the one who I feel like is really I mean, that's part of the plot of the game, is he's really the one pushing mm -hmm. he's the one who's burning up to to get revenge on cypher like he he's the catalyst i think um I, he's the one who kind of pushes the narrative forward even though venom snake is the protagonist quote unquote and the implication you know at the end of the game being that uh whenever venom snake flips over to being like a truly vi like vile force in the world at least the force that's described in the msx games mm -hmm. get the feeling causes mostly responsible for that right right like once once he finds out and once he finds out that the big boss has betrayed him and, and stuck him with this phantom, he just kind of it feels like he just it, it fits in pretty well because the master Miller that shows up in Metal Gear Solid is seems to be I don't know if ashamed is the right word, but seems to be sort of recovering from being a bit, you know, famous hard ass seems to be sort of retired and, and kind of trying to be more at peace with himself. That's that's the way I read it. Mm -hmm. so you there's there's a 10 or 12 year stretch there where i feel like cause was really becoming like a vindictive evil person mm -hmm. like really pressuring like doing some bad shit not being good yeah absolutely and i think his work with solid snake is supposed to be like a repentance of sorts mm -hmm. especially when solid snake is specifically squaring off against big boss and venom snake in those first two msx games mm -hmm. we will go much deeper into cause in our first episode in afghanistan as well so stay tuned mm -hmm. 
There isn't much to Venom's fictional history. He was born in California in 1932, making him 52 years old for the events of The Phantom Pain, just slightly older than the actual Big Boss. This medic was considered one of Big Boss's best and most trusted soldiers during the MSF era, which would explain both why he was on board the Morpho for the Ground Zeroes mission, and also helped shield Big Boss from Paz's final bomb. The rest we can unpack as we go, and I want to save the discussion about how this ties back to Metal Gear 1987's ending for another time. Hmm. But uh, a couple things we can kind of discuss about here. Um, Firstly is that one of the major popular fan theories before the Venom Snake is the medic uh, was revealed was that people thought this was going to be Gray Fox or Frank Yeager, possibly. Uh, Any thoughts on that? I mean, he could have showed up. I I don't... That would have been the one... You know, I th- think you want to be careful. Like, I don't... Huey being in the game is good. And I like, you know, Volgan being in it is kind of fun. You know, it's just like... A, it it fits with the themes. You know, just everyone's just sort of a specter animated by Petty Revenge. But I don't know if I like Eli and especially Psychomantis being in it. I don't know if I like it. Like, I go back and forth. I feel like Gray Fox could have also then. Like, I don't think he's supposed to be... He's not supposed to be young. I mean, he's definitely not younger than Liquid, so... No, no. He would have already been doing like his war crimes at this point. Yes, um, yeah. Because around this point is when he found Naomi as a kid, but he was already a soldier. Like possibly a very young child soldier. A young adult, yeah. yeah. I think it's good, but uh, Gray Fox is also one of those characters that Metal Gear Solid hasn't gone back to like specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, canonically, I'm not going to count Portable Ops. Um, so he has kind of crystallized in that first game perfectly. And um, they've only done explicit copies of him like Olga or Raiden, but never Gray Fox again. I, I know. I think it would have worked. I, don't, I just, cause he's supposed to, at some point meet link up with big boss. Like that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so like, I, I would have liked to see how that happens, but that, that would be the one missing game would be like a young solid snake game, which I suppose I would play, but I mean, I, I would play it for don't, I would play it, but mm-hmm. I, I suppose I would want that. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, um, well, when, when we talked about our sequels, prequels, and whatever episodes, I think the one thing that most people kind of wanted, um, if not a direct, you know, Solid Snake game to lead into or just remake uh, that first Metal Gear game, would be what Big Boss was doing concurrently mm-hmm. with Venom Snakes. Um, and theoretically, you could have Big Boss start recruiting people like um, a Sniper Wolf or a... Vulcan Raven, depending on when you place it in the timeline, but this feels this does yeah this like if you know if he looks almost he's an exact almost an exact copy of Venom or I guess the other way around mm-hmm. I could definitely see this like character model being solid in being like this legend like this is the this is Big Boss to me at this point mm-hmm. this is what he looks like this is the Big Boss that people talk about in Metal Gear Solid's one and two I think mm. or at least a big part of it. Which also is the fact that everything we know from Metal Gear Solid 3 and Peace Walker was kind of not in Kojima's mind really yet by the yeah. time of those two. Yeah. Whereas this is at least playing on some of the big boss thoughts he had in those original MSX games. Um, speaking of the uh, early Metal Gear Solid titles, I think the other thing worth pointing out is that this game is very structurally similar to Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty in that it has an opening... Um, kind of prologue or extended prologue sequence between Ground Zeroes and the tanker stage where you play as that badass hero guy you want to play as. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you kind of get the rug pulled out from under you, although the deceptions are different and the twist in this game comes much later in the game as opposed to after the first act. Yeah. 
Okay, let's hop back into the story. If you're playing Mission 46, The Truth, you'll also get an additional text card here with the Frederick Nietzsche quote that says, facts do not exist, there are only interpretations. A portent for what occurs in this game, surely, but I also think it speaks to how we, the audience and fans, should tackle the canon of Metal Gear. Not as a hard timeline of events that occurred, but understanding it through a framework of thematic and character analysis in which actual truth can be cultivated. First, we need to go over what happened prior to Venom Snake's Awakening. After being stabilized following the Mother Base attack, both Boss and his Phantom were moved to the Decalia SBA Memorial Hospital in Cyprus, with an assist from Eva, apparently. This is where they would spend the next nine years, going coma mode in secret to most of the outside world. <laughs> both underwent regular muscle stimulation to reduce atrophy, and the medic was undergoing hypno and physical therapy to brainwash him into being Big Boss. Zero, who was in a weakened state thanks to Skullface's parasite attack we discussed a few episodes ago, did visit Big Boss and his memetic clone in 1977, almost as a last goodbye to the man he once loved and now warred with. After this, Zero would essentially go into hiding again for the rest of his life. Big Boss woke from his coma not long before Venom Snake did, and Ocelot was there to meet Big Boss. Ocelot clued Boss into Zero's double plan with the medic and caught him up on other transpirings as Big Boss began to recover his strength. While out for a smoke, Ocelot let him know that, the XO that XOF had learned of his location and that the man on fire had awoken too. This leads them to slowly forcing the medic out of his coma and Boss donning a head wrap and the name Ishmael to guard Venom Snake until the latter was ready for escape. While that's all happening in the margins, let's get to what the player experiences. We covered Venom's initial waken awakening in the game's intro, and after passing out, Venom comes to three days later. Here we meet Dr. Constantinou, a memorable character and voice performance by Christos Vasilopoulos. His name takes from Constantinople, or is it Istanbul? They might be Giants references aside, just another doublespeak name. I need to tell you something. Please listen and try not to panic. You've been in a coma for quite some time. Yes, yes, I know you would like to know how long. I'm afraid it's been nine years. Damn it! So come on! Nosokoma! Nosokoma! Nurse! Calm down! Calm down! Try not to panic! Try not to panic! Venom Snake reacts poorly to the Nine Years news, gets sedated, and now we come back one week following Awakening. This time, the doctor clues you in on the extent of injuries V suffered, including 108 different pieces of shrapnel, bone, and human teeth embedded into his body. Most of the foreign objects were removed, but some were too close to the heart to risk pulling out, and then there's the giant horn sticking out of his head, which couldn't be touched. It wasn't life-threatening anymore, but could affect Venom Snake's cognitive abilities, which will explain some of the hallucinations he experiences later in the game. You know, Kojima had to have a, a piece of stuff sticking out of his brain to make his characters crazy. Sam Lake is never that kind of coward. He just makes his characters insane from the start. Or he makes them like he makes him like Max Payne. He makes them abuse drugs for a decade. I was going to say it's a good uh, meta 
meta metaphor uh, in terms of um, ever since I started playing Metal Gear Solid, I've just had this giant piece of metal boring into my brain over the last 25 years. Um, so it feels appropriate in that way. Um, I did want to flag like behind all the hustle and bustle of the doctors uh, in front of you, the radio is playing and it's in a language you can't understand. But at the end of the game, once you've gotten all your like translators and uh, what, whatever, like local speakers, um, you'll actually hear that the radio behind the doctor is talking about this massive plane crash, which was actually where um, Psycho Mantis and the Man on Fire kind of originate for this game. Um, it's not something you will pick up in the Awakenings version, but you should uh, hear it during the Truth version of this mission. Uh, I should speak Cypriot Greek. Maybe you do. Yeah, no, it's possible. <laughs> sure, somebody who played this did. That's fun. That, that's got to be satisfying. Mm-hmm. Lastly, the doctor asks him to look down at his arms, revealing that Venom Snake no longer has a left hand. This causes yet another fit in Snake, who passes out again. What takes place next is where the timeline blurs for Venom Snake, a truth we will only find out in Mission 46. In our inaugural playthrough, quote-unquote Snake wakes up three days later, and Dr. Constantinou lets us know that there are people who are not happy that Snake is alive, and that these people were on their way to kill Snake as he speaks. To help protect him, they are going to plasticky surgify Snake's face to look like someone else. The player at this point goes to a character creation screen where they can create a new face for Snake. After the player has crafted their phantom, the doctor holds up a mirror to you, revealing the face of Snake, a perfect match for Big Boss. It's framed as if this is the last time Boss is going to see his real face, but that's a lie. The Doctor also gives you the codename Ahab here and shows you a picture of Snake and Kaz from MSF posing for a nice fa family picture with some MSF soldiers. During all this doctoral exposition, however, someone snuck into the room behind him and the nurse. And not just someone but an elite XOF assassin played by Stephanie Justin, who will go on to become quiet following the events of this prologue. But before we get to her killing everyone, let's remedy the timeline. In the prologue mission, the plan for plastic surgery and Quiet's arrival happens within minutes of each other, and the story seems to be Quiet and XOF got there before V could have his face changed. However, in the Man Who Sold the World mission, we find out that these events happen days apart. On March 9th, 1984, V is actually put into plastic surgery two days before the XOF attack. This detail is actually buried in the character creator screens when the medical calendar changes behind the input menus. When the doctor holds up the mirror to your face this time before surgery, you see the character face you created, which at least in my case was my own face, an avatar for me. So when you wake up again on March 11th, 1984, the player now has the face of Big Boss. And when you're shown the photos from MSF, you as the medic from Ground Zeroes is now shown next to Kaz and Snake, indicating you were not the actual Big Boss. In fact, the back of the photo says, good luck, Manu, from Vic Boss. Well, it probably doesn't say Manu for you, but it sure did for me. So I had uh, my game crashed when I was first doing it. I was kind of making someone who looked a little bit like me. And it crashed and didn't save, so I had to restart it. So I just made, like, a generic-looking guy. Like, I, I basically made the guy it starts with and changed very little. And that actually almost confused me at the end of the game. When I saw that guy's face, I was like, who is that? <laughs> the action was like, who's that guy? 
And then I, I, it took me a second. I was like, oh, that's okay. I get it. But yeah, I wish I had, I didn't quite, quite have that experience because I, uh, I messed it up or I had like my Xbox. I don't even remember. It was, I played this game. I was playing this game at like 12.02 a.m. on September 1st, 2015. So I think it just had like the server crash or something. Something happened. It, it restarted my game and I lost all my uh, avatar progress. But I, I distinctly remember like laughing at that, being like seeing when it, you know, the big reveal showing the, the medic there and just being like, who is that guy? It's just some guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the character creation screen is... It's not bad. It's very detailed and you can... It's hard to make someone who doesn't look like a caveman, but it is pretty yeah. good yeah. in terms of the detail. Um, I spent a lot of time, and when I say it looked like me, it's mostly I changed his skin to brown and black hair and gave him a little beard. Um, it's not like he actually actually looked like me in any real sense. It's not an NBA 2K level face creator. Yeah, right. It's still pretty good. Yeah, I like it. For the purposes that you're using it for, they did probably more than they needed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is something that if you replay these missions, you can come back and alter your character look if you do want to update it. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to Quiet's assassination attempt. She kills both the nurse and Dr. Constantinou with a Garrote in perfect stealth. In killing the doctor, he was revealed to be carrying a pistol, which he drops as he is choked to death. Quiet calls her employer, presumably Skullface, to tell him that Snake's death was imminent, but that the patient in the next bed had also seen her face, which presumably means he will need to be killed too. Quiet readies her knife to gut V, and V tries for the doctor's gun, but is unable to get it. Quiet gets it instead, but just before she can put one between the player's eyes, the patient next door tackles her, and a giant tussle begins between the two. They go back and forth, Quiet throwing a knife into his shoulder, while the patient throws all sorts of ballast at her, including a jar of rubbing alcohol. thought it was weird when the uh, when the patient gets hit in the shoulder, he stops time and goes into a menu and stitches it up. That was kind of strange. Make sure you uh, use the bandage at the end. Yes. Uh, sutures first. <laughs> Quiet seemingly has the other patient down and goes to choke out Snake, all from V's point of view, mind you. And the screen fades to black as V passes out. For just a second. When he comes to, we get woman on fire. The patient used a lighter to engulf her in truth and flames, but Quiet still keeps fighting. Only a second jar of rubbing alcohol hits her and turns her into an inferno, and she goes screaming out the window. Some quick notes on the symbology at play in the scene. During the sequence, there are a lot of mirrors around the room, which calls back to our discussion about this game being all smoke and mirrors. If you pay attention to the lighting and fans on the ceiling, you will see V-shapes all over, from the V-shaped hangers holding up the lights to the Vs of the fan blades. Oh, and Quiet is humming a tune while she preps for this assassination, a tune we will come back to later in our coverage. And next to Venom's bed is a white lily, the star of Bethlehem that ordained the map on which Naked Snake fought the boss at the end of MGS3. After Quiet is taken down, a single petal from the flower drifts down into Venom's field of vision, a not-so-subtle hint that the boss's will, as carried out by Zero and or Big Boss, is about to fall. Our patient from the bed over, whose face is wrapped in bandages, introduces himself. All the Moby Dick sickos in your life are absolutely going to love this. Okay, have time to go. What happened to the woman? The woman, I, we gave her a light. She took the short way down. Who are you? 
Emily. You're talking to yourself. Been watching over you for nine years. You can call me Ishmael. What the hell is going on? Well, the good news is, you're in the land of the living. Bad news? Oh, what wants you to On your feet, soldier. The whole place is coming down. Ishmael, of course, is Big Boss, which I assume everyone already knows. All right, let's get moving with this game a bit. Ishmael gives you an injection of digoxin to get Venom back in the game. Venom Snake has a hook on his left arm where his hand used to be, and I'm sorry, I don't have any good fugitive one-armed man jokes at this time, but the prosthetic does look a bit like the one Frederick Sykes had in that movie. Anyway... The Solid Snake saga ended with a near-death snake slowly crawling through a microwave tunnel, spending his last bits of strength to bring down the regime built by Zero. Here, Venom Snake is coming to life in much the same way, a slow crawl down the hallway as he slowly begins to pick himself up and learn to walk again. This is very much meant to invoke evolution. Skullface says Sahelanthropus is the day weapons learn to walk upright, and we know Big Boss is a weapon himself, and he's learning to do the same. And per Kojima, this linear sequence to start MGSV is meant to evoke the older MGS titles before evolving into a brand new open world experience. Take note of the tile work in the hospital too. They are hexagons evoc evocative of the big shell from MGS2. You know, that whole game that was about a simulation designed to create a copy of Solid Snake? Same thing's happening here. Ishmael notes that Ahab is in no condition to take the stairs, so he works them towards the elevator when all of a sudden, a kid cosplaying as Psycho Mantis appears out of nowhere. Well, it is Psycho Mantis, as we'll get into in a future episode. Psycho Mantis. He floats away, his overlong sleeves on fire, and then all of a sudden the hallway is alight in flame and smoke with the fiery demon making its way towards Ishmael and Ahab. Only when he sucks closer do we realize this fire in the shape of a man is the phantom of Colonel Volgan from MGS3. He's got our pals deads to rights, that is, until the waterworks kick in. The sprinklers go off in the hall and extinguish the man on fire for now. Wonder if this is telling the player something about how to defeat this guy. Who's to say? Ahab was blown back by the man on fire's arrival and had his arm broken in the process. As the sequence is this game's tutorial, we now learn the healing mechanic for when Snake is severiously injured. This also segues us into our navigation tutorial as the digoxin is kicking in and Snake can now go into crouched and standing positions, albeit still a bit labored in movement. Helicopter lights shine in through the windows, teaching the player how lighting works and how to avoid detection as they crawl past the search parties. Through the windows, they see even more troops arriving at the hospital. Smoke starts to fill the hallway as troops approach from behind, murdering nurses and orderlies as they go. Just pretend every time I say the word smoke, I point out that this game is literally all about smoke and mirrors for the umpteenth time. Ishmael and Ahab, or Big Boss and Venom Snake if you prefer, duck in and out of rooms as they make their way out of the hospital. There are all sorts of little moments I won't detail in full, as they avoid being caught by hiding under hospital beds and supply closets, all while watching the hospital staff butchered. And not just butchered, but the troops are literally double-killing all the corpse to ensure no survivors, and then checking faces and IDs to see if they got Big Boss or not. Eventually, they work their way down a stairwell and find themselves sequestered with surviving hospital staff, 
behind a locked gate in a narrow hallway. XOF troops show up at both ends and just rain bullets down on all the survivors, but Ishmael once again pulls Ahab out of harm's way as they duck through a side room and emerge further down the hallway, pretending to play dead amongst the corpses. Another mechanic being taught to you, one that started back in Metal Gear Solid 4. I enjoy the part when you're in the little, um, you're in that, that room with all the guys on the beds, and it's like, it's a classic stealth game thing where it's supposed to be like a dark, I think they probably wanted to make it darker to make it more believable that you could be hiding there. But instead it's just like a, a, a it's like a room with a lamp on. So it's like very easy to see everything. Mm-hmm. And the guys are peering under the bed don't see you. And I'm like, man, these, these XOF troops are bad. They're very bad at their jobs. They have metal gear, solid one cones of vision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was that noise? Whose footprints are these? That's what they said when they went over. This is uh, probably just because I just watched V for Vendetta um, the other day. Um, but there's also a ton of scenes where uh, Natalie Portman is hiding under her bed and watches people getting shot in front of her. And it just kind of reminded me of this as I was writing this up. It's a classic of the genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Moore is disappointed in you. <laughs> oh, he'd be disappointed in me for lots of reasons. He's also disappointed in you for because uh, you haven't killed all the lizard people yet. So, you know. Yeah, well, I, I'm working on that one, at least. I love you, Alan. You're an insane person. <laughs> XOF troops, I repeat, are double-killing the corpses here, making their way through the hallway and putting bullets in all the dead bodies, slowly making their way towards Big Boss and V. It looks like Doom wants the soldiers identify Venom Snake as Big Boss, but Mantis appears and disappears once more, again heralding the man on fire, who draws the attention of the soldiers. The man on fire goes full Sebastian Shaw from the X-Men here, absorbing all the firepower being shot at him, and then blasting back the soldiers with all that energy. He even takes out a chopper before once again closing in on his quarry. One more time, the sprinkler system saves the day as Big Boss shoots the piping above the man on fire, and the game is really trying to tell you something about how to stop this guy. With navigation and healing all tutorialed, it's time for the last piece of basic training, combat. Ishmael grabs a gun for you, and you take out a couple troops and a fire extinguisher to help clear a path to the lobby. Don't miss the environmental storytelling here, as blood streaks indicate that bodies are being dragged across the floor into the lobby. The hospital's lobby is heavily guarded, so Ishmael decides to run interference. At this point, Ahab has the choice to either try to sneak through the other side or eliminate as many soldiers as possible. Either way, before you can make the exit, the man on fire arrives yet again. In mission 46, it's an added objective to hit the man on fire with 20 bullets and engage him, as opposed to the prologue mission which is built on avoiding him at all costs. The man on fire will even do the multi-directional bullet attack that Vulgan did in his fight against Naked Snake in MGS3. I remember distinctly before, like, I think either right before the game came out or right around when it came out, People were theorizing that Ishmael was a hallucination, and this is the only scene that really made me believe it. The way he just leaps off the like the the off it's like off the side of the staircase. He's just gone, like he just disappears. Um, it's always really funny looking, but I also this is the point where I really wish that David Hayter had done mm-hmm. Big Boss's voice, just because just we we could have gotten one more like Hah! when he jumps off the side of it, or like ah <laughs> yeah. Even if it was just for that line, it would have actually really worked really well, too. Yeah, I would have loved that. But alas, uh, Kojima has to be a star fucker. Yeah. A lot of Metal Gear, like going all the way back to the first game, a lot of the staging and timing is goofy. But it does stick out like 
I'm going to run interference. Then he takes his silencer off, throws <laughs> that, um, and then he goes and just dives off the staircase. It's like, all right, man, you definitely created a distraction. I won't disagree with you there, but I feel like there's so much garbage. You could have thrown every, anything else, kept your silencer. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's fine. It's just, it's, it's just really funny in the moment. It's like, what are you doing, dude? How is this helping me? <laughs> I'm going to do a suicide plancha. Like, all right, snake. Super kick. And I guess uh, just before we uh, keep going with this, uh, this scene here and everything le leading up to it has been like more violent than anything in Metal Gear before this, mm -hmm. like in terms of like um, the way that blood is spraying everywhere. Um, there's a part in here where people are getting decapitated by helicopter blades. Um, the way the man on fire is just rolling through people. Um, it's violent in a way that uh, Metal Gear Solid never was. And I'm not saying that with any kind of, oh, this is good or this is bad. Um, it's just kind of what it is. And I think that kind of plays into Kojima trying to make this more of a adult and serious story than some of his previous entries. It's also, I, I want to say also, considering now it's on Game Pass PC and I'm going to try and download it and play it. This whole sequence is a lot like a lot of the opening stuff in, in Death Stranding. Just like the way it's paced and the way it looks. His horn mm -hmm. always looked like a very, that's like a, a modern Kojima design to me. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So I am very interested to see how much more it's like it really. Cause I've only played like five hours of death stranding. So soldiers keep filing in to fight the man on fire, but Manta Mantis takes out half of them by telekinesing a helicopter at the troops, the propeller blades chopping them in half. A tank arrives too. And the man on fire blasts it and venom snake out the front door. It seems like Venom is defeated here, but an ambulance driven by Ishmael takes out the man on fire and Venom hops in as they make a harrowing escape from the hospital. Venom Snake looks back to see the hospital lot just blowing up left and right, and even as the ambulance escapes, flying trucks and cars come crashing into their path. Eventually, a roadblock sends the ambulance crashing off-road in the suburbs of Zilotemuvu, and this is where our story takes two branches. First, let's do Venom Snake, since his is the story told in the prologue, and we will circle back to Big Boss's path after. At 3.07 a.m., Venom Snake wakes up to find himself alone in the crashed ambulance, but when he crawls out the windshield, a giant attack chopper has sights on him. Kid Mantis shows up here, with a piece of shrapnel in his head, this time indicating he's ever so briefly on Venom, Sni Venom Snake's side. The child summons a giant fiery whale to swallow the chopper, and from the flames emerges the man on fire atop a flaming unicorn. Absolutely gnarly, metal shit, the most metal Metal Gear Solid has ever been. I definitely did not really pick up on, on the little clues as to who Mantis is being controlled by at what point the first time through, for sure. So that's the thing I... been playing it again off and on the last couple of months. I've been trying to look for those in the cutscenes, and it's a, it's there's a lot more there, and I think I put together originally which is fun mm -hmm. and we'll talk about it a little bit more as it goes but um just in case you're not aware what me and brian are talking about when we say this stuff um mantis is essentially always serving someone in this game um and you can tell who he's serving by his accoutrement like when he's serving the man on fire his sleeves are on fire um in the brief moments he helps snake he has the shrapnel on his head uh, when he's serving Skullface, he has the Kato mask on top of his gas mask. Mm -hmm. And I know he has some flair for Eli near the end of the game, but I can't remember exactly what it is. And maybe he doesn't have flair for Eli. Maybe that's why he stays with Eli. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. We should have looked that up first. But Oh, yeah, that could make a lot of sense because they are buddies. And uh, 
Liquid and uh, Mantis are like Foxhound members. Yeah, and you know the Mantis who's in MGS One is definitely not being controlled by anybody else. Like he is his own man mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for good or ill, mainly ill. But then an old face, well, let's call it a medium-aged face, shows up on horseback to save V. Get on! I'm on your side! Hurry! Hurry! Hey everyone, it's Revolver Ocelot, or just Ocelot this time, as he hands Venom a shotgun, which the player will use to ward off the man on fire as we have a little horsey chase scene through the woods. After the sequence, a crash of lightning takes out a bridge, taking Snake, Ocelot, and his horse with it. All survive, by the way. The lightning also heralds rain, which puts out the man on fire for this mission. And if you recall MGS3, it was a lightning bolt that did Volgan in at the end there too. Parallels. Now seemingly safe, Ocelot tells us he was sent to save Snake and then send Snake off to Afghanistan to save Kaz Miller. Ocelot gives Snake some exposition and ketchup, including what Kaz and everyone has been up to and what's going on in Soviet Afghanistan, in which Kaz was training the Mujahideen before being captured by Soviet forces. From there, they head to the docks to catch a whaling freighter to Port Kasim. And yes, whaling is yet another reference to Moby Dick. Don't take too long getting used to your new self. Hang on. At this point, we get a travel montage a la Indiana Jones, with the red line on a map tracing us through Venom Snake's journey to Afghanistan. Note that from Cyprus, the whaler goes through the Suez Canal, an extremely important choke point for the international economy, something the whole world realized in 2021 as the Evergreen Freighter got stuck therein. The map also prominently features Yemen on Venom's travels, which is among the countries the US and Saudi Arabia were immiserating during the production of this game, and has continued to bomb the poor country into high heavens. Uh, Call your senators and representatives and tell them you don't want that anymore. (laughs) I'm not kidding. The travel montage is overlaid with Donna Burke's wailing from Sins of the Father, and we get to watch Venom equip himself with his basic accoutrement for this game. His new cybernetic arm his e-cigar, a Psycho watch worn on the prosthetic, and his Sony Walkman. All things we know about. But hey, let's rewind a bit and finish the story of Ishmael. While Venom Snake awoke from the ambulance crash at 3.07am, just another awakening in this prologue, 
Ishmael, aka Big Boss, woke up at 2.32 a.m. and was pulled out of the ambulance by Ocelot. Ocelot got the real Big Boss safe first before returning to Venom Snake and helping him evade the man on fire. At about 6 a.m., near the ruins of the lightning-struck bridge, Ocelot reconvenes with Big Boss in classic Big Boss outfit, ready to smoke an actual cigar. Ocelot hooks up Boss with a motorcycle and a passport, one that belonged to the player, or you, or the medic, however you want to describe it. Ocelot explains that Venom Snake will overtly play the role of Big Boss, legendary mercenary, while the real Boss goes on to build his nation. Now this one, he'll take your place. From here on, he's Snake. He believes it too. My very own Phantom, huh? Boss, the whole world wants your head. Don't worry, he can handle it. Move now, quickly. Aren't you forgetting something? With that, Asla lights Big Boss's cigar, which is not innuendo. Are you sure? And you get the game's proper ending, including a timeline of events and a tie-in to that original shot of Outer Heaven you see when starting the Phantom Pain for the first time. But we're going to talk about the post-Phantom Pain timeline and the final scenes in Outer Heaven in a later episode when we wrap up the various storyline endings of this game. Are you sure that's not innuendo? Well, at least what we see is not innuendo, but at some point I assume Ocelot does suck off Big Boss. In your endo, Ocelot. (laughs) Yeah, I love... This is such a good Ocelot. Like, this is... When you said Ocelot shows up, I wanted to say, oh, you mean the main character of the series is here. Yay. Mm -hmm. The main protagonist of Metal Gear is is here. Yeah, no, it's cool. Like, uh, I I know it was revealed to us in one of the, like, uh, E3 trailers, but it was... uh, such a good idea to include him and then include him as an ally or ostensibly an ally. Obviously there's like layers upon layers of deception happening here. I mean, for the purposes of, of like of taking out Skullface, he is absolutely an ally like that. He, that is his goal. Oh yes. And I think there's no better person to have someone create the next big boss than to have Ocelot there at his side. Um, Cause he, you know, has the longest history with uh, the real big boss. Um, and then also, um, yeah, I just think he's like the perfect character. Kaz obviously fills a role in this too. Um, but I think Ocelot, it's just a really smart use of that character. Well, they're, they're the, Ocelot's the good angel and Kaz is the bad angel or the devil on it, on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. I would say bad angel is more appropriate, but like, um, yeah, yeah, it's just great. And you know, it's great that we'll talk about him more, but if you're going to get anybody to deliver, I mean, I'm, we're, Thousands upon thousands of words of exposition. Troy Baker is about as good as you can get. Of just being able to read copy and make it sound interesting. He's very good at that. Yeah. In a way that like Nolan North isn't, or like Steve Bloom really probably isn't. Mm-hmm. So he has that special talent. He's that's why he's one of the best. He said I was in a British military hospital, but the doctor had a Greek accent. They hire locally. Easier to trust them. Kelly is also home to Greek Cypriots, after all. What about the Turks? They haven't returned to the south. Not yet. 
The Cyprus dispute is still a long way from resolved. The country is just as split as it was in 74. Turkish Cypriots in the north, Greek Cypriots in the south. Between them, the Green Line, the UN, established. And the Kalia sits right on top of it. It does. Part of the buffer zone between the two groups. Another reason it was the perfect place to hide you. Easy to spot any outsiders snooping around. So how do things stand? Now, last year, the Turks declared that the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus is an independent state. Though it's only Turkey that recognizes it. In the past, the Greeks and Turks lived side by side in the same villages. There are reasons to fight. Those came from the outside. Greece, Turkey, Britain, America. They all had their own stake in pitting the two sides against each other. But once you spark something like this, it's impossible to control. Both sides build up grudges like debt. Without the foresight to see that each act of revenge just fans the flames. And then it's too late for other nations to rush in with peace talks. The embers keep on smoldering. Each nation's arrogance only breeds anarchy. The world is paralyzed by this hunger for revenge. Cyprus is no different. Cyprus is one of the few isolated settings of this game. Only the prologue takes place here, and it's not a setting you run multiple operations against a la Camp Omega even. But I think its inclusion as a setting is not by accident. The hospital is the Decalia SBA Memorial Hospital on the Decalia Sovereign Base in the Western Ormida region in Cyprus. Cyprus has spent much of the 20th century as a British colony, but the empire's presence there extends back to the days of the Ottoman Empire, who named the British the Protectorate of Cyprus in 1878 in exchange for the UK's support against any Russian aggression towards the Ottomans. Cyprus would end up being a very important military location for the British. To use a cliché, it itself was nowhere special, but on the way to everywhere special. It allowed for strategic monitoring of colonial trade routes, namely the one through the Suez Canal and to India, Britain's most important colony in the first half of the 1900s. This is very much the route that Venom Snake takes to Afghanistan as shown in the Mission Interstitial. Cyprus officially became a British colony in 1925. The Brits had annexed it from the Ottomans when the latter joined the Central Powers in World War I, and neither Greece or Turkey wanted it at the time. The people of Cyprus, or Cypriots, are predominantly Greek and or Turkish, and following World War II, the Greeks and the Turks began to feud, both as citizens of Cyprus, but also as proxies for the politics of Greece and Turkey. The Greek Cypriots increasingly were for Greek unification in hopes of enosis, which sounds like Greco-Byzantium manifest destiny, essentially. Hellenism, let's go. <laughs> the Turks at first wanted it to remain in British control, and then they wanted the island back, but having only 20% of the population be Turkish Cypriots, they wouldn't have the numbers to either take or rule the island. The Brits were just worried about all this because when Crete was returned to the Greeks, they kicked out all the Turks there, creating a humanitarian crisis. Cyprus was granted independence in 1960 in the Zurich and London Agreement, hammered out between the UK, Greece, and Turkey. The UK was to retain two sovereign base areas, Ekoritiri and Decalia, the latter are setting for the mission. Though the agreements drew up tried to fairly approximate the racial dem demographics of the country, it soon became a tug of war between the Greek and Turk Cypriots, each acting as proxies for their mother nations, almost like the US and USSR writ small, thematic coherence once again. And, you know, uh, a consistent problem 
that the British ran into when they were demarcating parts of their old empire. Mm-hmm. Like they're just really bad at, at, at dividing up territory, like the partition, everything. Like they're just, they're never good at it. They always mess it up. Mm-hmm. They always cause things to be honestly worse than they were under British rule. And I, you really have to wonder at a certain point if that's on purpose or if they're just in, incredibly incompetent because, I mean, the, la- the story of the latter half of the, of the 19th century and basically the entire 20th century is is British incompetence. So, No, I think you nailed exactly the point. I think p- part of what happens to these places afterwards, that's just A, a part of like imperialism yeah, and colonialism, yeah. but also some of it is I don't the Brits, especially like what I know of what they did with India or like India writ large, which includes like Pakistan. The entire peninsula, yeah. They just wanted to leave that subcontinent in ruins. Um, you know, they had no desire to make sure it was materially well off as they pulled out. Yeah. Um, so no parallels whatsoever to modern uh, United States foreign policy. No. Although we might we might be better at it than they were, which is really embarrassing because we're, we're bad at it, too. Violence would erupt, with hundreds killed and thousands of Turkish Cypriots displaced. Turkey almost invaded in 1964, but Lyndon B. Johnson, legendary figure from Metal Gear Solid 3, (laughs) stepped in to stop it, threatening to withdraw U.S. support against any Soviet aggression. That's why he won that election so hard, because everyone was like, "That's he was in Metal Gear Solid 3 in 1964. Barry Goldwater wasn't there. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say uh, people were single issue voters on the Cyprus question back. Uh, no, they were single issue voters on uh, which of these presidential candidates has awarded someone the title of big boss. So above even the boss. In 1974, right before the Peace Walker incident, a Greek military junta executed a coup d'état in Cyprus, installing a Greek nationalist and pro Enosis president, Nico Sampson. 20 days later, the Turks invaded the country on grounds laid out in the 1960 Treaty of Guarantee, though the international community rejected this reasoning. A ceasefire would be reached a few days later, though over 200,000 people would end up being displaced in the short time in which the two factions mobilized. The country was effectively partitioned thereafter, the north to the Turks and the south to the Greeks. Turkey officially considers its half of the island the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, but no major body has recognized its sovereignty. The UN maintained a peacekeeping force to protect the buffer zone between the two sides, which would be slightly opened up in 2003 and 4 as Cyprus officially joined the EU. In recent years, Cyprus has seen conservative rule in its governing bodies. You, you, you won't know this if you're listening. Well, everyone's listening. But he, he wrote peacekeeping force in air quotes. So, you know, important to know. Yeah. If you want to go back to the double speak, uh, peacekeeping force is definitely one of those war is peace kind of uh, expressions because they're not really there to enforce peace or they are there to enforce peace, but at bullet point, which, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's the uh, euphemistic language, you know, all that George Carlin stuff has and hasn't aged well. <laughs> Okay, but why Cyprus as a setting for MGSV then? As mentioned earlier, it's a synecdoche for a lot of themes present in MGS already. We are seeing proxy wars between Greece and Turkey, a favorite motif of Kojima since MGS4. We have a country that's effectively partitioned, artificial borders trying to neatly divide a group of people instead of working towards community. A world without borders, an army without borders, militarisans frontiers and whatnot, That was the dream of the boss, and then how Big Boss interpreted it. But the world they are fighting against is not just full of borders, but the borders themselves are causing violence. 
and this will be a through line to Afghanistan and Central Africa, where the British threw up their own borders, carving up South Asia and the African continent and all the violence that caused. And that's just the concept of dividing the land. It presupposes that land can be owned at all. If you look at the Pashtun people of Afghanistan or the Mbele and Bhutta communities in Central African setting, these are people without necessarily a Western or capitalist concept of land ownership. And to that end, the indigenous American code talkers inclusion in the story feels very deliberate. The Decalia sovereign base area is a phantom of Camp Omega as well, a piece of empire carved out on foreign and potentially hostile soil used as a strategic location for signals intelligence. Is that who Sigint becomes? Despite the calls from the local government to remove the Brits, the base has remained open and operated by the UK, not unlike Camp Omega or Gitmo in Cuba. And it should be worth noting at this point in our neoliberal world, anything the British are doing is being backed by the US because the US views it also as a very important strategic military location. And I don't want to move off this topic without saying the obvious. The Venom Snake character is a medic and he comes to in a hospital. Something, something, thematic coherence. Kojima has explicitly stated that MGSV is about how this game is about both the 20th century as the American century, and how it's very possible that the 21st century won't be an American century. And though we are going back in time to 1984 for this game, I think Kojima is using the dying British Empire to tell us what he thinks will come of the dying American Empire. We see its desperate hold on colonial outputs via the inclusion of these military bases to open up the MGSV experience. And from Cyprus, we are going to go to Afghanistan, famously known as the Graveyard of Empires, where the British wasted years previously and the Soviets would during the events of this game, and in our real world now, America is the latest to get burned in the West Asia country. The only entity I can think of who had a good time in Afghanistan was Hirohiko Araki, because apparently part three of JoJo's is just like a travel log of places he's been. And he has like a long diatribe about how much he likes Afghan, Afghan food and how much he enjoyed it there. And I was like, good for you. The only the only foreign uh, invaders ever enjoyed their time in Afghanistan is the guy who wrote JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is my long winded point. I know we've gone long on just a singular mission of MGSV, and we won't be doing that going forward. But I hope you understand why I find this game so incredibly riveting perfectly round, wound around its themes of imperialism, proxy wars, and colonization. And you can probably already see how all these themes come to life in Big Boss, Kaz, Skullface, etc. It's perhaps the most well-researched and th- thoroughly layered real-world politics I've ever seen in a game. That's offensive to Deus Ex. Yeah, well, I haven't played it, so <laughs> just, technically no, it's that's, true. I mean, Deus Ex is the, the, the fun of that game's politics is that it, it exists in a world where every single ni- 90s conspiracy theory is real. So it's like comically stupid, but then you'll have like a 20 minute conversation about like the ethics of governor, like, like what, what it means to be a governor, like what, like what you're allowed to do ethically with like a random Australian bartender. That's the, the, the love of that's the deus ex politics. Like the actual politics of the game are incredibly stupid, but like the politics of individual characters in the game are like very smart and intelligent, which is why it's a, such a wonderfully dumb game. And one of the smartest games, somehow. I love it. It's a great game.
that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Podcast Sans Frontiers at gmail.com and at Pod Sans Front on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, which, yes, is my Lord of the Rings podcast, um, but that is currently supporting the last set of episodes for Podcast Sans Frontiers which I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings and the Rings of Power over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and A Song of Ice and Fire, and House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF. I'm still Brian, and I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not looking forward to the Rings of Power. It's going to make me angry in ways that I, I know are happening. It's a, It sucks because, like, it's it really it's a bad feeling to know that's going to happen. I mean, it is getting like incredibly strong reviews and I have issues with just claiming that, but it's going to be geared towards people like me who mostly love the movies. If you're a Tolkien sicko, it's not. Yeah, good. that's the thing. I mean, second age stuff, if you were going to put a gun to my head and, and say like, hey, when they should which when should they do an original show? That's when you do it. But it's just going to be dumb. Like it's going to be. It's going to like ignore things it shouldn't that would make for good tv i think that's more what i'm mad about like i don't care if it contradicts one line from one appendix that tolkien wrote in 1920 like i don't care that much about that i'm more like they're gonna go they're going into a really uh interesting part of the legendarium that isn't really fleshed out and they're going to ignore stuff that would be cool television i know they are so not looking forward to that but i will watch it i why am i not gonna watch it yeah, uh, I mean, I have to watch it, uh, but... Anyways, in a donation, we have it, but a language. Now we can continue. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands.